and joy. Shocking even as we come across these words in Solomon's text. Let's read. Chapter 9, verse 1 begins this way. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked and to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. It's the first and only time it's used in this book of Ecclesiastes. But all who is joined with the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. For for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go. You hear that command? Go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor the favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, grateful that it reveals to us what otherwise would be hidden from us. Grateful that we get to see you, interact with you, and know you through it. I pray, Father, that today you would bestow upon us wisdom that would fill us with hope and joy. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Wisdom from the Lord enables his people to know hope and joy despite the certainty of uncertainty in life under the sun. I think that's the point of what Solomon's getting at. There's this, there's this sense in which he shows us hope and joy. I mean, it's like shocking almost. It's, all, it's almost like, well, where did those words come from? I mean, I don't think hope and joy. When, when people sit down and begin to talk about the book of Ecclesiastes, in fact, it's not happened once in my conversations with people as we have walked through this book uh, passage by passage. No one has sat down with me and told me, man, when I think of Ecclesiastes, I think of hope. No, no, not, not one person has come to me and said, I think 
I think Solomon's after joy. In fact, over and over and over, I've heard people speak to me about how, it's, how, how, how they think first of depression. And, and man, he seems so sad. In fact, that's the perspective of many people as they talk about this book, that they think that Solomon must have been depressed or that, that he was just pessimistic. He t- he's taken such a, a, a real look at this life that has, has existed under the sun. Not just we, we got to go back. we got to understand this, this life under the sun that he's describing is the life that exists after the fall of man into sin. He's not describing life in, in the Garden of Eden. He's not describing life before Adam and Eve decided to go their own way, rebel against God, and, and eat the fruit which commanded them not to. He is describing a life that exists as a re- reality of Adam and Eve doing what God had commanded them not to and now bringing the consequence to everyone who would be born of them. And he's taken such a real and honest look at it that, that, that people think, oh man, he must, he, he must be depressed. And in fact, one pastor that I have, have been listening to, and I've appreciated much of his perspectives, but one of these pastors has said, I, I think he's, he, he hit a midlife crisis. I think he's just honest. In fact, I think he's so honest that it's difficult for us to even deal with it, even feel comfortable with, because he's more honest about what's going on in this life under the sun than many of us ever want to be. But here he is, in the midst of talking to us about, about things that are, that, that, that are certainly happening and then that are uncertain in, in, in the things that are going to happen and telling us, just, just there, there's hope and there's joy. I mean, look at this. Look at, look, look, look at what he's doing. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 2, let's just go back and look. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. He's he's uncertain. Man doesn't know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. Our works won't determine for us what's certainly going to happen tomorrow. I can't be good enough to determine whether or not a good thing comes or a bad thing comes. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, you hear the, the, the contrast. To the clean and to the unclean. To him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. There's certainly some things that are certain, but there's a lot of uncertainty here. A lot of confusion, a lot of, a lot of not knowing what's coming next. Then in verses 11 through 12, I, again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. I mean, we have, we, we, we have uh, sayings like slow and steady wins the race because we know the fast person doesn't always win. The tortoise and the hare is a story that tells us that the fast don't always win. Maybe nine times out of ten, the fast do win, but there are always those stories in which the, which the, the fast man lost. You, you see the, 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 the YouTube videos of the person in the lead thinking, oh, I got this, and they begin to slow down and begin to celebrate too soon, and the person in second place beats them. Or they trip and fall. How disheartening would it be to be running along, you know you're in the lead and you're not giving up and, you're just, and you're, all of a sudden you trip and fall just before you get to the finish line. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Who's going to win the war? Nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent. I've known a lot of stupid rich people. None of you are here. Nobody in this room. 
No, haven't, haven't you known people? You're like, how in the world did they get to be so successful? These things don't make sense. There's a lack of certainty, a lack of assurance. There's this, this instability. For man does not know his time. And he comes back to this, to this, this theme that has gone all the way through about death. We don't know our time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. And right smack in the middle of these two passages, Solomon reminds us that there's hope and there's joy. You know how he's able to do this? Because Solomon has been given wisdom from God, he's already told us in verse 1 that he is doing this by wise observations, by, by observations given or, or that, that, that have come about by his wisdom that has come from God. Wisdom from the Lord enables his people to know hope and joy despite the certainty of uncertainty in this life under the sun. If there's one thing that's certain in this life, it's uncertainty. Think about it. He gives us, I, I just, I, I, I've already highlighted, we already kind of read through it, but I want to highlight three things that, that show us how, how Solomon has, has, has brought together what is certain and what is uncertain. How, how he's woven these two contrasting ideas apart and then, and then how in the midst of that he helps us see that there's hope and joy. First, enduring difficulty is certain. The reasons why are uncertain. Enduring difficulty is certain. The reasons why are uncertain. Now, now I want to clarify something. I, I, I realized this as I was writing this point out. I want to make sure that something's clear. We, we know that all suffering is because of sin. We, there, there would be no... If, if we had st- stayed... In, if Adam and Eve had never sinned, if they had never uh, eaten the fruit, God commanded them not to, if sin had never entered into the world, there would be no suffering, there would be no death, there would be no difficulty. It's, it doesn't have a place in, God's, in the midst of God's glory. It, it wouldn't be the same kind of issues. So we know all, all, all suffering, death, exists in this world because of our sin. Sometimes we suffer, sometimes we face di- difficulty simply because we live in a sinful world. It's just a sinful world. Bad things happen. Things that are out of our control come on us. We can't, we can't don't have power to overcome them. Sometimes we suffer as a direct result of our own sin. We face difficulty because we have sinned in some way, and now we're reaping the consequence of that. You commit a crime, you end up going to jail, you've got no one to blame but yourself. Sometimes we suffer as a direct result of someone else's sin. These injustices that happen, oppression, and and things like racism and... Uh, pedophilia. I mean, you just think about the the, the innocent child who is treated, mistreated by, by an adult. That's their sin bringing suffering on someone else. Somewhere in all of it, it's rooted in sin. But Solomon isn't getting at the the, the root cause of suffering. 
He's getting at God's motive in why he has ordained a particular circumstance in your life. Why he has either caused or allowed you to deal with a particular difficult circumstance. Under the sun, we are certain to endure difficulty. But if God doesn't make it known, his motive for bringing that suffering will never know whether it is because he loves us or hates us. We'll never understand if he doesn't reveal it, whether he is for us or against us. Wisdom keeps us from jumping to conclusions, though. Like Job's so-called friends. Job loses almost everything in a day. He loses all of his children, his livestock, his, his houses, all this stuff that he had is gone, wiped out. He keeps his wife and his health. And his friends come up and they're like, hey, Job, what did you do to make God mad? He's removed his favor from you. He must hate you. And Job's like, I don't know. I, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I mean, why would this happen to me? Wisdom keeps us from making those silly mistakes. It keeps us from walking up to someone in the midst of a storm and saying, boy, you must have sinned really big time. God must be out to get you. How do you know? If God doesn't reveal his motive, how could we ever know? It was by wise observation that Solomon has already previously pointed out to us that, that, that what, prosperity may not even be a good thing. Like, like we look at somebody who is blessed, who has money, who is, has position, who has status, who has, has, has authority. We look at that and we think, oh, God has blessed that person. It actually may be a curse. He makes that point in Ecclesiastes 6, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And then he points out in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 15, that adversity is not always a bad thing. In fact, it actually may be a blessing. There's a time and season for everything. Time for planting, a time for plucking up, a time for building, a time for tearing down. God uses these difficult things in the life, in, in this life, for his good purpose. But if he doesn't reveal it, we can never be certain his motive. Wisdom keeps us from making the wrong conclusions. And so instead of facing difficulty that is certain and thinking, oh, woe is me, God must hate me, I have to do something to measure up. Wisdom measures this. Wisdom walks in this. Wisdom seeks something else. It guards us. It enables us to take a measured approach. It keeps us from listening to our gut, to, to those emotions that are so often wrong. It keeps us from listening to the influences of a sin-filled world, which I can tell you right now is going to be wrong. If you're taking your advice from CNN or Fox News Someone outside of the body of Christ, let's just put it this way, someone outside the body of Christ who has not grown and matured in wisdom. If that's the source of your influence, then you are being led astray. Wisdom protects us from that. 
Wisdom even protects us from those friends who are close, who mean really well, who don't say what they should say and say what they shouldn't. Wisdom protects us from that. See, difficulty, that's certain. God's motive is uncertain. Why God allows it, why God ordains it, whether he's for you or against you, we need more than a circumstance. We we need more than to try to read tea leaves off the days and weeks of our lives. We need his word. That's where we find his wisdom. Difficulties, difficult, our difficulty is certain. God's motive is uncertain. Difficulty giving way to death is certain. When and how it comes is uncertain. Solomon tells us, verse 3, we're all going to die. The same event happens to all of us, right? Like he's, he's kind of laying out. There's these difficulties, these, these hardships that we all face. The same thing happens to the, wise, or to, the, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices, to him who doesn't. And he comes down to verse 3 and, and he winds it all up. This is an evil that's done under the sun that the same event happens to us all. Every one of us die. Death is certain. When it comes and how it comes is uncertain. We all know it's coming. But we have no idea. We're like the fish that's swimming in the river that sees a worm and under that worm has no idea that there's a hook that's going to snag it and drag it out on the, on, 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 and drag it up into the boat and bring it to the beach and have it cut up and ate. Has no idea. Has none whatsoever. It's like the bird that's snared for food. I mean, that's the reality of the situation. We have no idea. There's a reality. There's a reality that could come at any moment. We are not promised anything beyond this one. We we don't know what's next. Oh, we can make educated guesses. We we can think we know. Well, I'm a healthy person doesn't mean the ceiling won't fall down and bust my head open. I hope it doesn't. That'd be kind of hard for everybody, I think, right now. It could happen at any moment. But the wisdom Solomon received from the Lord kept him from running to despair. I mean, I've pressed on that, right? And, and, and there's a sense, oh, we don't even like to think about it. We'd rather just ignore it. Like, don't, don't, don't talk that harsh about death and, and my inability to know when it's coming. Don't, don't press on me the reality that I, I may not get lunch. Solomon doesn't run to depression or anxiety over it because he looks at it with a wise, a, a wisdom that comes from God. See, rather... It brought a certain sense of resolve. See, under the sun, we're certain that difficulty is going to give way to death. Wisdom doesn't remove the uncertainty of when it comes. But wisdom enables us to proceed toward death, looking toward death, rather than running and ignoring it, running to depression or anxiety, but to look at it and let it become our teacher. 
Let it prepare us to live today and truly to live in the day that it comes. I've already shared this quote with you. I think it's helpful here is David Gibson in his book called Living Life Backwards writes this. Death is not just a line you cross when your time is up. Death is an evangelist. He looks us in the eye and asks us to look him right back with a steady gaze and allow him to do his work in us. In, in us. Death is a preacher with a very simple message. Death has an invitation for us. He wants to teach us that the day of our coming death can be a friend to us in advance. The very limitation that death introduces into our life can instruct us about life. Think of it as death's helping hand. I mean, just consider this. If we had no concept of death, and we had no idea that it was coming, what would ever prepare us to think about what's next? Why, why would we care if we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Why would it matter if we live a life that honors and glorifies Him? Why would it matter if we tell our neighbors about Him, if death is nothing, if death is not to be considered? Why would I get up in the morning? Why would, I, why would, I, why would, why would any of this matter? This seems to be the perspective that people tend to turn to when they think of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Well, I'm not going to get up and enjoy life because I'm just going to die anyway. Solomon's whole point is because death is coming, get up and enjoy life today while you still can. Because it's God's gift to you. Regardless of whether you end up with him in eternity, today is his gift to you. It's come from him. So get up and enjoy it to the best of your ability. I, I, I've said this to you before. I don't know. It's been a long time. I, I ride a motorcycle, and when I go riding, sometimes I, I press the limits. I don't intend to. It's just, you know, it, ha- it happens. But I find myself in a curve that I think, oh, my gosh, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? And I leaned over really tight, and I can feel the wheels beginning to slide. And, there's this moment in the midst of that. And Amy's appreciating that. She won't want me to ride my motorcycle anymore. But there's this moment that there's a sense of life that I have in no other time as I recognize how real death is. I'm able to appreciate the things that I have in this life because I know in this moment I am close to death. Let it teach you. Wisdom enables us not to look at it and run and hide. Wisdom enables us to look at death and not be anxious or depressed or, or to, to, to crumble in despair. It enables us to look at death and let death do what God intends it to do. To be taught. This is coming. Are you ready to live. Death is certain. When it comes, isn't certain. It's best to go ahead and deal with that stuff today. And not just tonight when I get home. Right now. Right now. The future is uncertain. But the future being in God's hands is certain. 
You, know, you just consider this. I, he, he's already shown us all the uncertainty, the, the certainty of uncertainty. He's shown it to us. He's, he's woven this idea of death and it's, and it's time coming. He's woven to this, this idea of, of difficulty and, and not knowing exactly what God's doing. And now he weaves together this idea, this, this, this contrasting idea that we can't know what, what's next. But the beautiful truth is that just because we can't doesn't mean God can't. Just because we can't see into the future doesn't mean it's unseeable. It doesn't mean that God can't see it. What we can't see, God can. What is uncertain to us is not uncertain to Him. He knows who wins and who loses the war. He knows who gets rich and who doesn't get rich. He knows who wins the race and who doesn't win the race. He knows. God knows. The importance of God's sovereignty cannot be overstated here. We can't diminish it, we can't overlook it, because if we do, wisdom loses any sense of semblance or purpose in our life. We must emphasize it. We must see it. Did you see it? As as I read it, we we can so easily pass over it. All this I laid to heart. He's examining, he's looking out, he's looking at everything with this wise observation, this wisdom that God's given him. All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. It's all in his hand. It's a picture of control, a picture of security. What seems uncertain to us is certain to him. What's unstable to us, what's unstable to us is stable to him. Spurgeon, speaking to the divine sovereignty of God, once said in one of his sermons, there's no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that the sovereignty, that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation. Is that not what Solomon is doing? God is sovereign. He he has it all. He holds it all in his hand. It's because of the sovereignty that the the Solomon can look out with wisdom and find hope and joy in in the instability of what's uncertain in his future. Because he knows God knows. Because he knows God has it. Because he knows God's power and authority is at work in it. There's nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all their works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. God's sovereignty is the foundation of Solomon's argument. We mustn't miss it. We can't deny it If, if we do. If we look past it and we just talk about wisdom and we talk about our wisdom, that wisdom can't help us. This is the Lord's wisdom given to his people. Wisdom is helpful because it discerns for us as much as, 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 much as we're uncertain of, as much as we know that difficulty comes, as much as we know that death comes. There's a stability because our sovereign God holds it all in his hand. If he doesn't, that's when nothing matters anymore. This is the truth. 
This, this is what Solomon builds out. This is the truth he establishes for us and, and turns words to, to, to use words like hope and joy. Despite the certainty of uncertainty, there is joy and hope to be had. The certainty of God's sovereignty provides that hope. It was just a few chapters ago, Solomon was saying it's better off for a person to be dead. And, and we have to deal with this because here in verse 4, he's, he's going to tell us that, that, hey, it's better to be living than to be dead. It almost sounds like he's contradicting himself. But when you go back and look at the context, he's writing in a context, looking at a set of circumstances from a wise perspective. And he's saying, look at all the oppression. Look at all the ways we sin against each other. Look at the way we use power and authority and prosperity to to push each other down, to tear each other down, to be divided against each other. He's saying from that perspective, in, in, in that view of things, it's actually better to be dead than alive. But now, in his view and observation of wisdom, he said there is a way, a reason, it's better to be alive than to be dead. In fact, the way he says it here is it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. We, we don't get the, the contrast of that. We don't, we don't see that clearly because for us, dogs are our man's best friend. They're pets. They're, you know, we love them. And, but, but, but the real push, the, the real push comes from the reality that in his time and in his day, dogs were... They weren't domesticated. They didn't belong to you. They were scavengers. They were troublesome. They were a problem. Lions, it's still majestic, still king of the jungle kind of thing. But he's saying it's better to be that living vagrant than to be the one who's dead and was majestic. But he's saying that because dead people can't hope. As soon as you die, the hope is over. There's no more reason to look forward to anything. Your fate is sealed. What's true of you in this life is made true. Now, now we see in, in this text, we see in verses 4 through 7, uh, or, or I'm sorry, 4 through 6, we, be, we, we see that Solomon has no idea what comes next. Like he is, from, from his perspective, from his wise observation of what's going on under the sun, he can't see past death. He just assumes that's it. No more, no more thinking, no more life, no more doing, no, no, no more nothing. It's just this, just this reality that, that, that you're dead and you're in the ground. That's it. Because God hasn't revealed everything to him. But what he gets right is that the moment of death, there is no hope. It's either going to be replaced, faith becomes sight, or it's going to be replaced with the reality that rejection becomes condemnation. As long as we're alive, there's hope. Because God is sovereignly ordaining things to bring glory to his name and to establish his kingdom in the world. The certainty of hope is provided by God's sovereignty. And even before Christ had come, even before the the promise had been unveiled to them of what the Messiah would look like, what the Messiah would do, Solomon was able to see with wisdom that the sovereignty of God provides hope for all who live. The certainty of God's approval gives us every reason to rejoice. If God wasn't a sovereign creator, I don't know that this would be very convincing. 
I mean, you consider all the things that we endure in this life, all the difficulties that we face, all the struggles, all the problems, all the hardships. How in the world? How in the world could we ever experience joy? How in the world could we ever obey Solomon's command? Look, look, look at it in verse 7. This, this isn't a suggestion. This isn't advice any longer. He's given us advice along the way about eating our bread with joy. But he's commanding it. Go. Eat. Go. Eat your bread with joy. He's commanding us to this. How could he ever do it? First, if God wasn't sovereign, but also if, if the sovereign God hadn't given us his approval. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. God has already looked at you and said you are acceptable. Enjoy what he's giving you today. In Judaism, this this verse is read at the end of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. At the end of the day when when all the the mourning, when the sacrifices are done, when it's time to celebrate, they would read Ecclesiastes 9-7. As the foundation for their joy, recognizing that God had made a way for their sin to be paid for so that they could be approved, so that they could rejoice as they ate their food. Now, obviously, we look at this from a different perspective in a Christian worldview and in, 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 in the reality of what's been revealed and what God has done. But let's just think about this. If God has already approved what you do, that becomes the foundation of everything we have to celebrate regardless, right? Like if, if we recognize I, my sins are atoned for, I have no reason not to celebrate. If I can't be certain if God's atoned my sin, if I can't have any reason to think that I'm going to live for eternity, then the best I got is this life. I better enjoy it now. reality is this is this is all we know unless God shows us more if God gives us the reality gives us the revelation gives us the understanding that he has atoned our sin that he has approved us then we have no reason to celebrate in fact I love this because the hope and the joy that he puts before us but that Solomon tells us about that Solomon calls us to it's a hope and a joy that's not bound to the circumstances of life but it's tied to the nature of God it's tied to the nature of his sovereign rule in the world it's tied to his hand at work in the world and his approval of us as his people the joy that Solomon is calling us to the joy that the hope that he's calling us to It's based on what God has done and who God is and not what we're experiencing here. So wisdom is only able to discern these things because God is who he is and is doing what he's doing. The alternative. Not rejoicing. Sitting here and listening to a sermon about death and difficulty and not rejoicing in the food we eat and the the, the wife that we love and the wine the garments are like dressing up and, and walking around, not, not, not walking around in, in sackcloth and, and putting ashes on our heads, but, but dressing up in white, celebrating what God has done. 
putting oil on our head to, to, to moisten us and demonstrate the anointing, his, his anointing on us. Enjoying the wife with whom we love all the days of our vain life. To not enjoy these things is to demonstrate that we don't appreciate what God has done. To sit here and to listen to a sermon about death and difficulty and not rejoice today is a determination that we know better what we need than God. It's a demonstration that we think we're wiser than he, even though our wisdom is limited. Wisdom from the Lord enables us It enables us to know hope and joy even with the certainty of uncertainty in this life under the sun. Solomon made all of these observations. He looked at all of these things and he made these observations from wisdom given to him by God. But we know something he didn't. We've had something revealed that he couldn't know. God has shown us more of the picture. He has unveiled some of the mystery. I want to give you a leg up on discerning these things so that today as you walk out of this room, as you sit in this room, and then proceed out of this room, that you can walk with hope and joy because there is certainty in the sovereignty of God, and he has proven that in the gospel. You see, our certainty is not bound up in our wisdom or our ability to observe in wisdom what God is doing. It is bound up in the gospel. In Christ, what was uncertain has become certain. We still, know, we still don't know times and dates. I don't know when the time is coming, but I know, we know, because of Christ, what comes next. This is why Paul could write words like Philippians 1, 21 through 23, for to me, for me, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He couldn't say that if God hadn't shown him. You see, Solomon's already told us there's no gain in this life under the sun. It's all vanity. It's all futility. Where is the gain? Paul tells us that the gain is after. The gain comes because of Christ. It comes in death as we enter into life. He goes on, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. He wrote these words to to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.8. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It's better to die and be with the Lord than to continue in existence here is what he's saying. Now, now he's not being Mormon. He's not saying we should all drink a bunch of Kool-Aid and kill ourselves. He's not calling us to some cultic action of, of, of mass suicide. He's just demonstrating that there is a blessing and a benefit, that there's no reason to fear death, because when we die, we go to be with him. In Christ, what was uncertain has become certain. We still don't know when it comes, but we do know what comes next. In Christ, you are fully approved. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. I, I, I don't know if you'll ever believe this, this side of heaven, but I'm going to try to press it upon you now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No 
condemnation. He doesn't say there's a little bit of condemnation. He doesn't say there's condemnation every time you slip up and mess up. He doesn't say that if you don't measure up to to your own standards that God's going to condemn you because you didn't measure up to your own standards. He doesn't say in any way that he's holding anything against you. There is no condemnation. In Christ Jesus, you are approved. Sorry if I'm scaring him. You are approved. You don't have to make up for anything else. Your sin is fully satisfied in His cross. All of it was nailed there that day. Every sin you have committed, every sin you are committing now as you're doubting this truth and this promise, and every sin you will commit in the days to come are hung on the cross. There is no condemnation. He does not look at you and frown. He is not angry with you. He has no wrath against you. Everything he does is for you. So when we go to these words that Solomon tells us, all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. But God does and he shows us in his word through the cross of Jesus Christ that all he has for his people is love if you are in Christ he is for you he loves you he can't love you more if you do something better he loves you because you are in Christ he loves you because of who he is and what he's done There's not even a little bit of condemnation. 100% approved by God in Christ Jesus. In Christ, you are fully approved. In Christ, you have hope and every reason to rejoice. Peter, writing to a church facing difficulty, They were scattered, dispersed across Asia Minor because of the persecutions that they had faced in Jerusalem. As they went, the book of Acts tells us, as they went, they preached the gospel everywhere they went. And as they did, there were certainly people who would come to faith, but there were certainly people who resisted. There was all kind of social pressure. There was all kind of of, uh, uh, anger towards that, the the, the different persecution. I don't think this got to the great persecution that Nero exercised. I, I believe that Peter wrote before that, but I believe he talks about it coming, but he writes these words as he opens this letter to a church in suffering. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A hope that's not tied to the circumstances of this life. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's kept. It's held. It's reserved. Your name is on a place card at the table that the wedding supper is going to be at. You have a seat reserved at his table. This inheritance that's imperishable, it will never rot. It's undefiled. It wasn't bought with sin. It was bought overcoming sin and unfading. It will always be new. It will always have that new car smell. It's kept for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation that will be salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. 
Rejoice. Regardless of the suffering, regardless of the difficulty, in spite of all the uncertainty and the instability that seems to surround us, in this we rejoice because we are kept. There is nothing that can change that. There is nothing that can remove that. There is no one that can undo that. We are kept. Because by his sovereign power, he is fully approved of us. Fully atoning for our sin. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. If necessary, according to God's standard, according to God's plan. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Brothers and sisters, the wisdom that we have been given by God enables us to walk in hope and joy. Not because we get the right set of circumstances. Not, not because we figure everything out. But because we have a sovereign God who sits in heaven, who sent his son to die in our place and for our sin, that we that we might have eternal life knowing what comes next, that we might know that we are 100% approved, that there is no condemnation And as we perceive that, as we think on that, as we consider that, we can know the hope and joy that belongs to us. Part of our inheritance that one day we will take hold of in physical and tangible ways. So what? What do you do today? Enjoy this life under the sun. Anticipating with great hope and joy the life that is to come.